his new novel, The Long Fall, Juno Diaz reviewed it as an astounding performance that takes us to the lower depths but never leaves us without a light. And tickets for this KPFA benefit are 13 at the door, but for only $10 at independent bookstores, or you can get them online at kpfa.org. It is KPFA Radio. That's 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online and archived at www.kpfa.org. It's also a place where you can securely donate, and we do need your help between fund drives, so please, if you can, donate online. It's 3 o'clock. Next up, we have Jennifer Stone and Cover to Cover, Stone's Throw, followed at 3 30 by Free Speech Radio News, 4 o'clock Hard Knock Radio, 5 o'clock Flashpoints, and 6 o'clock the Evening News. Stay tuned for Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, March the 10th, 2009. Ah, next Tuesday is St. Patrick's Day. Ah, bloody hell. I spent most of last night listening to the the new tragedy coming out of Ireland uh I thought about it I thought oh I forgot to worry about Ireland you know I put that away I I I I let that go and so of course if I'm not worrying about it 24 hours a day anguishing it'll all go wrong again yes indeed anyway I'll save I'll save Ireland for a week <laughs> I'm only half Irish and the worst half. Yes, I'll I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do Ireland next week. I'll do uh, my favorite essay. It's from the archives. I got a wonderful old essay uh, about a woman poet I know from Ireland. Anyway, this past Sunday was International Woman's Day. And I thought about that and I thought, uh, is that all we get a day? No, 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 no. We get the month. The month of March. That's for women. Then after that, we can just get back to normal. <laughs> Fat chance. I I wonder, you know, uh, just imagine, imagine not a month, just imagine 24 hours of nothing but, let's call it, uh, let's call it radical feminist uh choices and concerns, you know, imagine uh, a world with no military machine anywhere, uh, you know, with the women, the boss of it. In the old days, 
we used to um, come to the station here at KPFA and take over. The women would just lock out the guys, you know. <laughs> Try to do that today, I think we'd be arrested. I'm sure they would call the cops. Oh, oh. things were more fun in the old days, she said. No use bitching, right? Uh, <laughs> I'll just go back to my my fantasies, my uh, alternative universe, uh, the place where I hide. And now that feminism is so out of fashion, actually, the truth is, um, it isn't even my great age. It's just that I have reached that stage in life where I understand. That it's too late for justice. Um, justice is not in the cards for human beings. Um, we get a little poetic justice from time to time. You know, the kind we get. We, we sense the truth and we understand the woes of our species. And, you know, we <laughs> get rusty with irony. Um, what I do at this stage of the game... Uh, in order not to become too sour, too negative. I try to remember the saints. I try to look to the saints, to all those voices that uh, comfort us and, you know, keep us sane. Uh, for me, the saints are the literary women, literary saints. Uh, it's a strange thing in our world where everybody has hardening of the categories. People always say, well, are you into literature or are you into politics? And I said, it was literature that got me into politics. Uh, it was the women writers that I read that uh, raised my consciousness. And uh, I guess I was thinking about it last night and uh, I, I can never decide whether... My, I don't like to, I don't like to rate women writers. Uh, I don't want to put one before the other, but I, I guess I pick Virginia Woolf as the, the, uh, the linchpin, the key person. Uh, Gertrude Stein taught me that, uh, uh, politics, <laughs> po po politics is like prose, you know. Uh, just avoid it. Virginia Woolf is the woman who taught us that, uh, what is it, that the personal is political. Uh, she came to radical feminism, oh, early in the 20th century, and by 1941, she had decided to kill herself. Uh, she was 58, I think. And she saw the Second World War coming, and so she departed. Um, it's hard to understand. Um, most of the people I know dismiss Virginia Woolf as just, you know, one more of those effete intellectual limies. <laughs> but the truth is, uh, she was what we call these days, it's customary to call people things like an incest survivor. I think that's a little reductive myself, but... Uh, I thought today, just 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 for old time's sake, I would go back to the sort of things I was writing when we had women's newspapers here in Berkeley and uh, in Northern California. You know, you could write uh, literary journalism about the lives of, uh, 
Charlotte Bronte and uh, her sister Emily and people didn't think you were being, uh, uh, what is that, uh, an elitist. Uh, Virginia Woolf um, was, of course, clinically depressed. She was, uh, she was mad. Uh, in a little essay she wrote in 1928 called A Room of One's Own, she wrote, It is useless to go to the great men writers for help however much one may go to them for pleasure. I have an essay here that dates from, oh golly, I guess the 70s. It's back when uh, back when we had the newspaper Plexus, uh, a wonderful, a wonderful radical feminist rag. Uh, I lasted there, I think, four years, and I wrote mostly media criticism. I had a column called TV or Not. I decided that as a recovering English teacher, you know, we had to look at the media because that was going to be our education or the children's uh, education. I was right about that. Anyway, let me read you a little bit of Shakespeare's sister. You remember one of her images in uh, A Room of One's Own was the point at which she describes what would have happened to Shakespeare's sister. She called her Judith, you know. Had she come down to London... (laughs) <laughs> to go into the theater, right. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Virginia herself. She wrote, I know that I must go on doing this dance on hot bricks till I die. Virginia knew she was dancing with the devil, with a daemon. It drove her to create as well as into periods of psychotic withdrawal. Uh, it's so important to remember that Virginia Woolf was not just high-strung or neurotic. She had bouts of psychotic madness during which she had to be subdued, nursed, cared for in isolation. We're talking straitjackets here. Virginia's mother died when she was 13 years old. Evidently worn out by the demands of Virginia's father, the autocratic Leslie Stephan. Near the end of her life, Virginia writes that her father was one of those insiders. She considered herself an outsider. One of those insiders turned out by the university machine, the sort whose colorless English prose she says she respects but does not love does not savor. These thoughts are found in her diary from the years 1936 until her death in 1941. Her early years were scarcely as objective. She apparently tried to kill herself for the first time just after her mother's death. She suffered what is believed to be her first psychotic episode at that time. During her childhood, Virginia was the victim of continued sexual abuse. In a letter to Ethel Smythe, written on uh, 12 January 1941, she writes, I still shiver with shame at the memory of my half-brother standing me on a ledge, aged about six or so, exploring my private parts. 
Now, this half-brother, George Duckworth, was Virginia's mother's son by an earlier marriage. He would have been in his 20s at the time she describes this abuse. Virginia's, uh, uh, at the time he did this to, to Virginia, um, as I say, this was an ongoing situation in the old days. Uh, people didn't call the police, you know. Uh, what was it? Her sister said that was just what men did. Virginia's nephew and biographer, Quentin Bell, son of Vanessa, Virginia's full sister and closest to her in sympathy and age. Quentin Bell writes that his aunt, quote, felt that George had spoiled her life before it had fairly begun. Naturally shy in sexual matters, she was from this time, that is, the time of the abuse, terrified back into a posture of frozen and defensive panic, end quote. Footnote here. These days in uh, the year 2009... It's almost redundant to talk about uh, sexual abuse. Uh, it's, what is it, it's almost a condition uh, of our lives. We're so used to understanding that, uh, what is the word, that soul murder takes place. Uh, they tell us, the books I read tell me, that one in five children suffers from this syndrome. I imagine it's more of, uh, it's a tribe, uh, it's my tribe, and uh, we understand each other. It means that um, from the time this takes place until we die, we are never capable of fully trusting any other human being. It's that simple. It isn't that, uh, you know, we don't have wonderful lives anyway, but as um, Quentin Bell says, he... Uh, found that his aunt was terrified back into a posture of frozen and defensive panic. Quentin Bell has the limitations of his era, his sex, and his interpretations of Virginia's psychosexual life are simplistic. He quotes a letter in his biography, and he comments that uh, here he says, Virginia alludes to her frigidity. Virginia did not use that word. Uh, here is the letter written to a woman friend shortly after her marriage to Leonard Wolf. Virginia writes, Why, why do you think people make such a fuss about marriage and copulation? Why do some of our friends change upon losing chastity? Possibly my great age makes it less of a catastrophe. But certainly I find the climax immensely exaggerated, except for a sustained good humor. Leonard shan't see this. Due to the fact that every twinge of anger is at once visited upon my husband, I might still be Miss S. That great age Virginia alludes to is 30. <laughs> 30 when she married and actually... Uh, during her psychotic episodes, she did assault, physically assault, her husband, Leonard, uh, the one person uh, of whom she was most fond. Uh, when I, let's see, when I first came across this reference, that letter above, I filed it next to a letter written by Charlotte Bronte. 
Another woman, let's see, who married, uh, see, Charlotte married in her late 30s. And she had apparently the same sort of reaction, this, uh, what's all the fuss? Uh, marital bliss uh, was not something that <laughs> she, she found, what is it? She, she found that, uh, you know, that there had been a lot of fuss about not much. Now, uh, the question, of course, is whether this is frigidity or simply a complete lack of fulfillment. Uh, I'm sure there's a difference. Virginia's sister, Vanessa, also suffered from the prurient attentions of George Duckworth. That's the half-brother. Vanessa went on to a life of sexual fulfillment. That is, she describes orgasms, as well as... Uh, Children, lovers, so on. Um, lots of lovers. Uh, yet, um, Vanessa did not manage to have a contented and happy marriage, which by all accounts Leonard and Virginia did sustain during more than a quarter of a century. Um, Vanessa writes of the period following Virginia's honeymoon, quote, They seem very happy but are evidently both a little exercised in their minds on the subject of the goat's coldness. They call Virginia a goat. <laughs> I think I perhaps annoyed her, but may have consoled him by saying that I thought she never had understood or sympathized with sexual passion in men. Apparently she still gets no pleasure at all from the act, which I think is curious. They were very anxious to know when I first had an orgasm. I couldn't remember, do you? But no doubt I sympathized with such things if I didn't have them from the time I was two. Well, this is interesting, of course. Um, this letter written by Vanessa I find very revealing. Um, it's one of the more blatant forms of denial. Uh <laughs> It's one that some of us choose. Uh, it's a choice whereby one joins the oppressor. If you can't beat him, join him. You become a partner in the sexual game. The uh, uh, the notion being that if uh, you're in control, you know, uh, you're not a victim. Yes, a participant, a comrade in erotic achievement. Uh Imagine Virginia at the age of six trying to do something like that. Unfortunately, this role is not always authentic. <laughs> it's a role that gives women the illusion of choice, and it gives them a terrific part to play in men's lives as they grow older. Yes, then you can join in the fun. Uh, the point at which it is uh, a free choice, very difficult for people to to understand or to realize um, if, you know, if these abuses begin too early. Vanessa is a fascinating woman by some standards. Her life may have been richer than her sister's. Uh, she identifies her own desires with those of the men around her. She buries herself in womanliness, literally like her mother Julia and her older half-sister Stella, who died at age 28. Uh, 
she devoted herself to serving a male mystique, uh, although there is ample evidence that she enjoyed it. Lovers and children possessed her completely. Virginia was not like that. Vita Sackville West, perhaps the woman closest to Virginia after Vanessa, wrote that Virginia dislikes the possessiveness and love of domination in men. Mm-hmm. In fact, she dislikes the quality of masculinity. Well, perhaps, you know, perhaps uh, the tyranny that she suffered, both from the sexual abuse, which continued over many years, and the psychic abuse of men like her father and Vanessa's husband, Clive Bell. He was one of uh, Virginia's tormentors. She called him cock-a-doodle-dum. These uh, gentlemen sensitized her to a deeper need, the need to keep her soul her own. And she did love uh, Leonard Wolfe. She writes that after 25 years, they can't bear to be separate, that it is an enormous pleasure to be wanted, to be a wife. She writes about how complete their marriage is, how they walk about the square, lovemaking, share in the garden work, about how much it means to show him her work. Yet this is, this is a, someone she physically assaulted during her psychotic episodes. Obviously, yes, obviously, we're talking about a, what is it, an emotional split? I don't know. We don't talk about split personalities anymore. It's old hat, but it seems to me quite plain what was going on here. In the beginning of the marriage, Virginia seems to have had some notion that Leonard would awaken her sexually. She thought, perhaps because he was a Jew, uh, she imagined him more erotic than these Bloomsbury blokes she hung out with. The blokes like Lytton Strachey, who was gay, to whom Virginia was once engaged for the better part of a day. Perhaps what Virginia calls Leonard's passionate nature is just English for someone who cares. It seems he loved her. In any case, he developed a real capacity to nurture her genius, a willingness to love her as she was. She writes that she loves to be loved, and yet she has a physical aversion to her husband. Hot bricks indeed. In 1939, the Wolfs received a visit from Sigmund Freud. Freud gave Virginia a narcissus. (laughs) When I first read of that incident, I supposed he meant to to um, chide her, or maybe even insult her, and then I thought about it. Today, most people use the word narcissistic to mean self-obsessed or even uh, selfish, but in some mythologies, the god Narcissus also represents the reflective soul. I think of the moment Virginia Woolf describes in the opening section of her essay, A Room of One's Own, in which she is gazing down into the water of a pond, trying to grasp her own thought. She is interrupted 
by a fussy male authority figure who tells her that women aren't allowed on the grass. She must go somewhere else. <laughs> when I was a college student, luckily for me in a woman's college, this passage made a deep and lasting impression on me. The right to be alone with my thoughts, not to be interrupted by some officious man, became not just a right but a duty. Of course, it's still true even today. If Freud or any other man gives a woman a narcissus, he is probably accusing her of being less than outgoing. At the end of Freud's visit, Virginia wrote that he struck her as an alert, quote, screwed up, shrunk, very old man. <clears throat> <laughs> Freud had asked her what the English were going to do about Hitler. Well, what Virginia was going to do was kill herself. She and Leonard discussed suicide if Hitler invaded England. In fact, it seems that her own fear of another mental breakdown, always a recurring nightmare in her life, was what really drove her to her death. She was 58 in 1941, and she was suffering from auditory hallucinations again. She, uh, she heard those voices. She wrote about that in her suicide note. Uh, she tried to drown herself once before. She finally succeeded on 28 March 1941. She had to put large stones in her pockets to drown in the river. As she said to Vita, the one experience I shall never describe. Wolf's experience is of value to us, or at least to me, not just because of the skill with which she wrote and thought. I value her life because for me, it was prophetic. In the beginning, in her youth, she was a woman of her time, in spite of what she writes about going against the current and working with her back raced against the wall. In the 1920s, she wrote the brilliant feminist primer, A Room of One's Own, in which she insisted that we must avoid bias and that the cause of women can only be served by those who have no axe to grind. She cautioned women against being shrill. By the time she came to write Three Guineas, essay published in June of 1938. She seems to have realized that it's it's a little late for justice. By then, she had put two and two together and realized that fascism begins in the home and that the personal and the political are one. Wolf was what today is called an eco-feminist. She looked at Hitler and she looked at her father and she had an aha experience. She was an out-and-out -out pacifist, unlike Leonard. She believed that the, quote, beastly masculine reaction was the source for the dark days descending on them. Three Guineas is genuine protest literature. It denounces oppression and real evils in such a way that it was sure to turn off the male intellectuals. Her biographer, her nephew Quentin Bell, says his own reaction at the time of publication was to feel that 
an attempt to involve a discussion of women's rights with the far more agonizing and immediate question of what we were to do in order to meet the ever-growing menace of fascism and war. Well, that was to attempt a connection between two questions most tenuous. He adds that Virginia's positive suggestions are wholly inadequate. Even Vita did not like the book. <laughs> Maynard Kane said the argument was silly, and he hastened to add that in addition, it was not very well written. <laughs> and for Women's Month, March, I will go on next week to explain why it is that Virginia Woolf irritated the hell out of all the writers that uh, she hung out with. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday at 3 o'clock, just in time for St. Patrick's Day. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Birds do it, bees do it, even bowlers do it to save nature. Come to the 15th annual Bowl the Planet, a benefit fundraiser for SaveNature.org, Saturday, March 14th at Sarah Bowl in Daly City from 5 to 8 p.m. Registration is $35 and includes glow-in-the-dark bowling, music, pizza, and bumper bowling for kids. Call 415-648-3392 to sign up or go to www.SaveNature.org. Your support will save the wildest places on Earth. And this is KPFA in Berkeley, 94.1 FM on your dial, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno.